This morning as we continue our sermon series and Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, our sermon text is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 to 30. Our sermon text this morning is a reminder that this letter to the Philippians is really, truly, in the first place, a a letter, a pastoral letter, not a theological treatise, just as all the New Testament epistles are. In our text this morning, you see Paul is taking some time to explore the personal dynamics of his relationship to the church at Philippi, to the believers there. Paul, remember, planted this church. We read about it in Acts 16, and so he knows these people well. They included such folks as Lydia, the merchant, Um, who hosted Paul and Silas um, after her baptism and the baptism of her household, the slave girl who had a demon at one time before it was cast out by the apostle Paul, Um, and of course the local Philippian jailer and his household as well, who had also under Paul received their baptisms. In our sermon passage this morning, Paul in particular is going to speak of two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, both of whom he plans to send to visit the Philippians, though at different times. Epaphroditus will go first bearing the letter, and then Timothy, he says, he will send later. Now, I think a little review of the context of Philippians will help explain what's taking place in this passage as we prepare to listen to it. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church. Philippi is a city in uh, now what is north um, eastern Greece. Um, um, He's writing this letter um, from a prison cell in Rome where he is awaiting his trial before Caesar on, on charges of sedition because he keeps making the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the ancient world, prisoners in the Roman Empire were Uh, not cared for by the Roman Empire at all. They were simply awaiting trial. didn't matter to the Romans uh, whether they lived until that time or not. And so they were completely dependent upon others outside of prison to care for their needs. Paul, of course, has been cast out from his family, his Jewish family, because of his baptism and faith in Jesus. And so the Philippians, as part of Paul's new true family in Christ, have sent to him a significant financial gift that is quite literally intended to keep him alive. But in those days, you couldn't just send a check in the mail, right? There's no uh, Roman postal service, at least not for common people. And so they have to send one of their own, one of their pastors, Epaphroditus, along with several others probably to take this money on a hazardous journey to Paul in Rome. Now, it seems as though Epaphroditus has became sick, desperately sick on the way as he was bringing the gift to Paul in Rome. So sick, in fact, that Paul says that he almost died. But Epaphroditus presses on with his journey, and now after staying in some time in Rome, he is beginning to recover from his illness. Timothy, whose name is also mentioned in this passage, is also a minister, a pastor. He is Paul's chief disciple, his son in the faith, as Paul says. And he has spent decades learning at Paul's side. 
Bearing those things in mind, I encourage you now to listen once more as we read again from God's holy and inerrant word. From, so f- this time from Philippians 2, verses 17 to 30. This passage is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to follow along there. Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold. It is the most valuable thing in your life. It is more precious than fine gold. It is sweeter than honey. It is the most desirable thing in your life, for it is sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen now to God's word. The Apostle Paul writes and says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust that in the Lord, shortly, I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, Grant us now by your Spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we might even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the passage that we looked at last week um, in Philippians 2, 
the Apostle Paul had called his readers to holiness, exhorting them to obedience in Christ. And in that obedience, he tells them to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, promising that as they do this without grumbling or disputing, they will indeed be made holy. They will become blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, shining as lights in the world. But something that's not immediately obvious in the English translation of that passage is that when Paul tells his readers to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the your there is not singular, it is not individual, it is a plural word. It means your in terms of the group, you all, we might say. This salvation that Paul is holding out for the Philippians is not simply an individual thing, something where each person is individually working out their own personal salvation with fear and trembling alongside those others around them. No, more properly, the image that Paul is painting is that the community together is working out its salvation together. No one is doing it alone. All are being made blameless and innocent in union with those around them. This emphasis on corporate obedience, corporate sanctification, corporate salvation doesn't come easily today. It is one of the consequences of our modern age, actually, I think, that we default, we just go back, we fall back on thinking of ourselves in fundamentally individualistic ways, even in relationship to God and others. Individuals who, yes, might happen to be in some kind of voluntary relationship with those around us, but still, basically, we are fundamentally on our own. But this is not at all the way that the Scriptures speak, not really from beginning to end. In Romans 12, just to pick one example, um, Paul tells the church that though they are many, they are one body in Christ, and individually that they are members of one another. That phrase that Paul uses, that people in Christ, men and women are Christ, are members of one another, I think it bears some thinking about. He repeats it again in Ephesians 4. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What Paul seems to be saying is that we don't fundamentally belong to ourselves. Rather, we belong to Christ. And through Christ and our union with Him, we also belong to each other. We are participants in each other in some way. And that means that my personal sanctification, my personal holiness is actually not about me, just me at all because I belong to you and you belong to me. We are members of one another through Christ and the Spirit. And so my obedience actually is part of and encourages and supports your obedience and vice versa. We are all in some way, Paul is saying, in some fundamental and real way, truly responsible for each other. We share organically and each other's life with God. That is what Paul seems to be saying again and again. If we are one body in Christ, then I am called to obey God not only for my own sake, but 
for your sake as well. You are called to put off sin and to embrace holiness in your life, not only in order to please God, not only for yourself, but also as an act of love toward your fellow members of the church. What I'm saying is that there's no such thing as a personal and private sin that does not harm the whole body. And there is also no such thing as an unimportant individual act of obedience that does not also build up the whole body. That is the clear implication of Paul's teaching regarding our union with each other in the body of Christ. And in our text this morning, Paul is speaking of the way in which our suffering is something that we are united in as well. We are members of one another even in our suffering. In verses 17 to 18, Paul writes and says to the Philippians, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. You see, here Paul is building a, a symbolic typological picture of the way he and the Philippians are intertwined in their life together uh, with their union in Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, Old Testament sacrificial system, as we heard this morning, various animals and other offerings are given to the Lord. And the animals are in some sense representative of the worshiper themselves and of the people of Israel as a whole. In Leviticus 1, we're told that the Israelite worshiper was to, before he sacrificed the animal for his sin, he was to place his hand on the head of the animal. He was to, in some sense to unite himself to the animal. And then the animal would die at his own hand and be offered to the Lord as a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to God. But at many of the sacrifices, after the animal is killed and placed on the altar, the sacrifice is not finished until something else happens, until a drink offering of wine is poured out on top of the animal as the fire burns, as the animal is offered up to the Lord. This drink offering that is poured out over the fire, over the, the, animal, the animal's body as it's burned up, is described in the Old Testament again and again as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It is the drink offering of wine that brings the sacrifice to It ends and fulfills and completes the whole sacrificial act. And so here, when Paul says that he is like a drink offering that is going to be poured out on the sacrificial offering of the Philippians' faith, he is speaking almost certainly of his potential death. He understands that if he dies at the hands of Caesar, his death will in some way be the last act that he can offer as a pastor to bring to completion the faith of those believers to whom he is united in Jesus. Paul, of course, doesn't yet know at this time, well, whether he will die at Caesar's hands. He can't see that future with certainty one way or the other. But even if Paul will be required to die, even if it comes to that, even if he will be poured out, as he says, 
as a drink offering. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Why does Paul say that he's glad about this potential prospect, that he rejoices even in the midst of his suffering in that prison cell as he awaits his sentence? Why does he encourage the Philippians to rejoice with him that he has been called to this? Because he understands that his suffering is not meaningless, but that it will be used by God to perfect and complete the faith of those whom he loves, these men and women and children in Philippi, to whom he is united in a real way by the Holy Spirit. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's inviting us to see our suffering as not something we experience fundamentally as individuals, but something that we offer as a gift to others. That our suffering actually can become something that is meant and used by God to perfect and bless the faith of those around us to whom we share our life together. What Paul is saying is that our suffering with Christ, whatever that suffering might be, is actually a gift that we offer to those around us, a gift that we give to our brothers and sisters in Christ as we are poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of their faith. And that Notice that Paul does not say he pours himself out in his suffering. No, he is being poured out. God is pouring him out. God is the one who is working in this and doing this. And indeed, this is an image, I think, of our suffering that we should hold on to in our most difficult places of our lives, that in our grief, in our pain, in our sickness, we are actually being poured out by God. God is doing something in us. He is pouring us out like a drink offering for the sake of the body, for the sake of those to whom we are united in Christ. We are being poured out like a drink offering on the faith of those to whom we belong. Beloved, what I'm trying to say is that your suffering is not wasted. None of it is wasted. None of it. None of it is meaningless. The promise of the gospel, the good news of our union with Jesus and with one another is that we suffer with Christ. And with Christ, we perfect and bring to completion the sacrificial offering of faith of those around us. And so in the mysterious and wonderful logic of the gospel, we rejoice in suffering. And we call others to rejoice with us as well. Clearly, Paul does not want the Philippians to think that their life with God, their perseverance, is simply something that is up to them to figure out. No, he sees his Christian life as intimately connected to theirs. And so he, in addition to talking about his own suffering, offers them two men upon whom they can depend, almost, uh, the implication is, if he is not able to continue on. Here are two men who can depend on and rely upon as they grow together in Jesus. 
First, Paul offers them Timothy as someone on whom their faith can depend. That's what he gives to the Philippians. There is no one like Timothy, he says, who will be genuinely concerned for their welfare, for their well-being. There's no one like him, Paul says. And what a thing to be said about a person, right? To be someone who is genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. In other words, someone who cares about others and serves others, even when that notice, that service rather, is not noticed or appreciated or rewarded. That doesn't matter, because I'm genuinely concerned about those people I'm serving. It doesn't matter if they see it or if they reward it or if they acknowledge it. In the church, there is no higher praise than this, than the praise that Paul gives Timothy, to be someone who is genuinely concerned for the welfare and well-being of others, to be someone who, in other words, in humility, as Paul said earlier in chapter 2, considers others more important than themselves. But notice this, Paul will not send Timothy to the Philippians yet. And why is that? It's because he needs him. Paul says, I need Timothy myself. I have no one like him, no one like Timothy. And in his present suffering, Paul is saying, I need Timothy close by. I need this man who genuinely cares for the welfare of others, who cares for Paul's welfare as well. I mean, isn't that interesting? Right? Paul, the paragon of faith and Christian maturity, is saying, I am dependent on someone else for their love and service and, 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 and giftedness toward me. I need his presence. Even Paul wanted Timothy close by as he was in a prison cell. All of us in the church, as it turns out, no matter our stage of maturity, are dependent upon the faithfulness and love and service of those around us. But Paul then tells the Philippians that he is going to send them back now, someone whom they love, their pastor, one of their pastors at least, Epaphroditus. And here again in the verses 25 to 30, the picture that Paul paints is one of mutual dependence. He says he has depended on Epaphroditus, for Epaphroditus is his brother and his fellow worker and his fellow soldier, that Epaphroditus has been a minister to his need, but Epaphroditus is, Paul says, dependent on the Philippians. Actually, he's longing to see them again, to return to those people to whom he is so intimately connected. He wants to be restored to them. And in fact, he especially wants to be restored to them because he is distressed, because they know that he's been ill. And he's worried that they're worried about him. Isn't it interesting, right? Epaphroditus was so sick, Paul says, that he nearly died. But God had mercy on him and healed him. And Paul says, in this, God was merciful to me because my life was so bound up with Epaphroditus's in this web of common and mutual interdependence in Christ. And so now Paul is going to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, carrying this, this letter that we're reading this morning, so that he and they may be reunited and rejoice together. Honor such men, 
Paul says. Honor men and women like Epaphroditus, who give themselves in service to Christ for the sake of others. Honor those who are poured out, in other words, like drink offerings on your faith. And so as we close this morning, beloved, I just would put this question to you. Who are these people in your life? Who are the Pauls and the Timothys and the Epaphroditus's? Who is it that you are called to honor? Honor such people, Paul says. Acknowledge them. Thank them. And so as you think about your life and the church over the years, who is it that you have depended upon for your faith and your growth in Christ? Because it's someone, or some not just someone, many someones. There's no other way to grow in your faith in Christ, because none of us are alone. The mystery and glory and wonder of life in the church, life in this body of Christ in which we are all members of one another, is that we are all dependent on others for our faith and for our obedience and for our perseverance. So who is it that you are called to honor? That's a question worth considering from this text, I think. You see, too often we can default back into that default of individualism, that we're doing this life of faith on our own. It's up to us. It's up to our will, our perseverance, our seriousness, our you know, New Year's resolutions. But when we honor those who have served us, when we honor those who have poured out themselves or been poured out by God on us, those whom we have depended upon for our faith, it's a concrete act that points us outside of ourselves. I mean, do you see that? When we honor others for what they have done for us in the faith, we are pushing away and against that individualistic impulse. And we're reminded again and again in a concrete way that I don't depend on myself fundamentally, but I depend on Christ through his body and those who have walked with me over the years of my life. So who is it that you are called to honor? It might be your father or your mother who brought you to church over the years, who modeled the faith to you, not perfectly. Heavens, no, not perfectly, but modeled the faith who taught you to pray. It might be a sibling. It might be a grandparent. It might be your spouse. It might be a Sunday school teacher from your childhood who taught you the Bible and modeled for you what it looked like to love Jesus, even though you haven't thought about her in like 20 years. She was doing that for you. It might be the pastor who baptized you or the one who officiated your wedding, or the one who faithfully preached the Word of God to you over the years, even when you thought it was boring at times. It might be someone in the church who is simply being faithful, someone who notices when you're not here on Sunday morning and sends you a text or a call, someone who prays for you and encourages you. Right? I mean, there are particular people who encourage us in particular ways. It might be a fellow church member today, one whom you are witnessing as they 
grow in their obedience and joy as you see their suffering that is being used as they persevere in it to actually perfect and build up your faith. All of us, I am convinced, have men and women in our life to honor, and to honor them is a profoundly Christian act because it turns us away from ourselves and toward the body of Christ that we belong to. Because none of us, friends, are alone in this life of faith. All of us are members of one another. We're participants in each other's spiritual lives. All of us in the body of Christ are dependent on each other. And what I want you to see and believe is that is a deep and profoundly good thing. That is a good thing that God has given to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.